Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Elizabeth of York! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. And today we are going to be reviewing the consort of Henry VII, Elizabeth of York. Yeah. Technically, the first Tudor consort, rather than the last. Yeah. But it, it feels appropriate, given that she's of York, it feels appropriate to have her here. Yeah. As well as convenient. <laughs> yes, because I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to hear more of us, you can uh, join the Privy Council by supporting us on patreon.com forward slash rexfactor and get access to uh, over 100 bonus podcasts. Nice. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at rexfactorpod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Free stuff as well if you're a Privy Councillor. And I've taken to just giving stuff away or drawing <laughs> pictures. And uh, well, I think what I'm going to do is give away some of my history books. Sign them and... I'll deface them first, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Second hand, these are. Not made of money. (laughs) Well, if that's not enough to get you to join, then I... (laughs) Biography! Elizabeth of York is born on the 11th of February, 1466, at Westminster Palace, uh, the daughter of King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Oh. So this is the only occasion where we have a mother-daughter combo as Queen Consort. It's the only occasion I would have... No, because you need a usurper, don't you? Yeah, the natural order of things is that it should be queen consort to regnant. Yeah. So to have two consorts in a row from the With a female issue. Means something has gone a bit wrong. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Uh, she was the first of many children born to her parents. Um, Edward had been assured by his physician that the queen was conceived with a prince... Um, but said physician was obviously nervous about the outcome because he was waiting outside the room uh, during labour to hear news of the birth. He knocked or called secretly at the chamber door and asked what the Queen had, to whom it was answered by one of the ladies, Whatsoever the Queen's grace hath here within, sure it is that a fool stands there without. And so confused with this answer, he departed without seeing of the King for that time. Mm. And was he ever seen again? <laughs> Quite possibly not, because obviously she was in fact a boy without a winkle. Oh, it's a miracle. Uh, Edward, uh, Edward, though, was not overly disappointed and made uh, arranged magnificent christening for her with uh, Warwick the Kingmaker, Cecily Neville and Jacutta of Luxembourg standing as godparents. Nice. Uh, Edward appointed a tutor, who was uh, the very best in the city to teach his daughters, uh, both to write and read full soon, both English and also French, and also Spanish if you had need. Yeah, we're good. Hmm. Uh, however, her early years are marked by moments of great danger. Her father was the first king in the House of York, but in 1470, the uh, former Lancastrian king, Henry VI, was placed back on the throne. Hmm. Uh, Edward had to go into exile, whilst uh, Elizabeth, who was then just four years old, went into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey with her mother. Um, Elizabeth Woodfell. Elizabeth Woodfell, well, indeed. Um, I might often say her mother just to avoid saying Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. And we're yeah. us not being sure who we're talking about. Mm. Uh, thankfully, after more than six months in sanctuary, uh, Edward IV returned to reclaim his throne. Henry VI was dead, and they were set free once again. I'd like to find out more, I'm not expecting you to know this, but more about sanctuary in these places. What, did they have 
access to an outside area, do you think? Or just inside the church? Or Yeah, I don't know if there was a little... Uh, Little playground. Yeah, because it must have been like really like prison if they couldn't literally couldn't leave that mm. special stool or whatever it was. <laughs> and it's interesting because obviously we've had the, Elizabeth Woodville and thus Elizabeth York have it a few times. We had a mention of Anne Neville uh, and Anne Neville's mother also all claiming sanctuaries. There's quite a bit of it in this period. Yeah. Mm. yeah it was a tool that could be used. Mm. Uh, so back uh, at court and uh, restored to all honour, Elizabeth flourishes in the stability of uh, the next decade, the 1470s. Uh, she develops a love of music, dancing uh, and literature at her parents' magnificent and very cultured court. Uh, at nine years old, Elizabeth is betrothed to the French Dauphin, uh, which makes her the first English woman since the 10th century who is set to be the Queen of France. Really? Hmm, so we've taken some of theirs, but they've never wanted an English princess. Who was 10th century? So what's that? That's Saxons? Yes, yeah, so it's one of Athelstan's sisters. Wow. What about um, um, the one who was Queen of France? Was that later? Was that, that's that's uh, Mary, uh, one of Henry VIII's sisters. And Mary, Queen of Scots. It's like when you look back on a season in the 90s that wasn't won by Man United. What, what <laughs> yeah. then? How odd? Right, mm. fine. Uh, anyway, she is going to have that honour. So she uh, is then addressed as My Lady the Dauphine. Mm. Um, and is appointed to the Order of the Garter alongside her mother and aunt when she was just 11. Nice. And obviously her education, really everything about her upbringing now, is all gearing her towards being Queen of France. Mm. Um, however, having spent those formative years in such preparation, in 1482, when she's 16 years old, the Dauphin instead married the Duke of Burgundy's daughter. Oh dear. Yeah, because so Burgundy was one of those upstart parts of France, so mm. they're trying to... Trying to bring it back in house. that, yeah. Mm. Um, her sense of place in the world, obviously, suddenly in question. She spent, mm. you know, her teenage years preparing to be Queen of France, and suddenly that's taken away from her. Mm. Uh, but this is nothing as to the events of the following year. <laughs> in April 1483, her father, Edward IV, dies unexpectedly, leaving her 12-year-old brother, Edward V, as king. Mm. Uh, now, if Elizabeth, now 17, had been a boy with a winkle, mm. she would have come to the Being throne... Queen. Uncontested yeah. in the majority. And so there will be a minority which the nobles will fight over. Uh, and indeed, events quickly spiralled out of control. Many nobles are suspicious of um, Elizabeth Woodville's and her family's ambitions to control uh, the Regency. And Elizabeth uh, of York, and indeed, of course, Elizabeth Woodville, her mother, soon find themselves back in sanctuary uh, when Elizabeth's uncle, Richard Duke of Gloucester, took possession of Edward V and marched on London. Hmm. Hmm. And then after Westminster Abbey, where they are in sanctuaries surrounded by troops, uh, Elizabeth Woodville relinquishes possession of her second royal son, after which Richard declares Elizabeth Woodville's marriage to Edward IV illegitimate, and thus all of the children by that marriage, Edward V and Elizabeth of York, illegitimate. And mm. he takes the throne as King Richard III. Okay. And then after that, uh, Elizabeth we, presumably never sees either of her two royal brothers, now known as the princes in the tower, again, with most people presuming that they were killed. Yeah. Um, now, she probably wouldn't have known her, uh, well, not her older brother, she's the oldest sibling, she probably wouldn't have known the older of the two brothers, Edward V, very well, because uh, when he's only two, he gets, or three, he gets sent off to Ludlow. Mm. Uh, but the second prince, Prince Richard, she would have known. Um, she would have grown up with him and indeed those early weeks in sanctuary before he is ultimately sent off to the tower, he was in there with them. 
get to know someone quite quickly. So she would have known him very well. So that's quite a personal loss that he has suddenly taken out of her life. Yeah, that's horrid. And you think, just a year ago, she was gearing up to become Queen of France, and suddenly she's a a royal bastard hiding in a church. Yeah. Oh, how they fall. Mm. Prospect's pretty bleak, however... She is also, in a funny way, for many people, she's the heiress of the House of York. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't agree with Richard III becoming king, Elizabeth of York is now the eldest surviving child. Oh, because presumably the prince of the dead. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously she already was the eldest surviving child, mm. but without any male heirs, she is now the senior child in dynastic time. I see, so it become more useful as a marriage... Indeed, and while still in sanctuary, her mother concocts a plot with Margaret Beaufort to put Margaret Beaufort's son, Henry Tudor, on the throne on the condition that he would marry Elizabeth of York if he was successful. Margaret Beaufort does that? With Elizabeth Woodville. Yeah, because she was conspiring with the two. And was that a flip-flop from Margaret? Was she on the... Was she... She was behind a uh, measly funeral procession. Uh, no, your thing, Margaret, your Elizabeth Woodville had the measly funeral possession. Margaret Beaufort was in the train for Anne Neville's coronation, and yet, and yet this. plots. Yes, okay, yeah, 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 Richard. yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, the uh, rebellion against Richard in fourteen eighty three is something of a damp squib. Uh, the Woodville participants, the male Woodville participants, were forced into exile. Henry Tudor doesn't even land on British shores. He does make, back in uh, Wren, uh, a public oath in the cathedral that he would marry Elizabeth of York when he becomes king. Yeah. So that's still part of the plan. Uh, However, by 1484, um, Elizabeth's mother, surprisingly, comes to terms with Richard III, who guaranteed her and Elizabeth and her sister's uh, safety. Mm. So Elizabeth, in 1484, makes a very conspicuous return to court, Uh, She's now 18 years old, uh, like her mother, very beautiful and very accomplished, and uh, unsurprisingly turns many heads. Mm -hmm. What is surprising is that one of the heads she turns was that of Uncle Richard, and he seems to view her as a potential uh, successor to his sickly wife. Mm. Richard needs an heir after his son has died, his wife is ill and unable to have more children, and uh, the rumours that he's planning to marry his niece Elizabeth of York is sufficiently strong that he issued a public denial on his wife's death and sent Elizabeth away to Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire. Because it's that's too scandalous. Mm. Yeah. Okay. However, Battle of Bosworth, August 1485, Henry Tudor kills Richard III in battle, ends the Plantagenet dynasty and becomes the first Tudor monarch, King mm. Henry VII. Despite his oath at Wren, however, he does not immediately marry Elizabeth. First, in fairness, he needs to repeal uh, the act known as Titulus Regius, which is where Richard had declared Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodrow's marriage invalid. So he makes that valid, reinserts Edward V into the line of succession, and says Elizabeth of York is also now a legitimate Yorkist princess. Uh, And although my claim to the throne is just, I'm going to marry her anyway. Hmm. Well, that's the other thing. So Henry um, needs to solidify and make clear to everybody his own claim to the throne. Yeah. He's effectively the last man standing for the Lancastrians, uh, claiming his descent through a once illegitimate line of John of Gaunt, mm. son of Edward III. Um, but there are plenty of Yorkists who have a better claim to the throne than he does. And indeed, as the eldest child of Edward IV, you might well argue that the person with the best claim to the throne in 1485 is actually Elizabeth of York. Yeah. 
So whilst she doesn't seem to make any kind of active claim to the throne, as Francis Bacon observed, there was a risk for Henry being seen to rely on her claim to justify his own. It lay plain before his eyes that if he relied upon that title, he could be but a king at courtesy and have rather a matrimonial than a regal power, the right remaining in his queen upon whose decease, either with issue or without issue, he was to give place and be removed. Because it's that much stronger than his. Mm. So, so if, it, if he is seen to justify his place as king on the basis that he's marrying her... Anyone could, yeah. Well, or indeed, you can get rid of him because mm. you'd still have the person who's got yeah. the claim to the throne. So... What, does he try and dress it up as love? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, he does still need to marry her because he can't risk anyone else doing so mm. and thus getting that same claim that he doesn't want that claim to the throne. But equally, yeah. it would be strong enough for someone to challenge him with it if they married her. And she's a vital part of his plan to bring the House of York and Lancaster together. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides, the Crowland Chronicle observes that most people did think he actually needed <laughs> a bit of a boost. There was discussion about the marriage to the Lady Elizabeth, King Edward's eldest daughter, in whose person it seemed to all there could be found whatever appeared to be missing in the king's title elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, that's not missing, is it? She she fills in the blanks. Mm. So what he does, though, is basically lay out what dynastic claim he does have and also say, by the way, I did win the battle, so, you know, right of conquest, etc. Yeah, yeah. you've got a better claim, that's right, but look at all these people. Um... But, nevertheless, he he does intend to marry her, but he has to make himself king first, Mm. or else people will think that it's some kind of joint rule. Um, Despite the fact that the marriage is delayed, it seems the physical relationship had begun, because Elizabeth was almost certainly pregnant when they got married on the 18th of January, 1486. Oh, scandalous. Um. With her pregnant and queen, uh, Henry wanted to use the birth of his first child, um, which obviously they assume will be a son, yeah, and a son of Lancaster and York. Mm. So he wants that son to be a figurehead around whom everyone could unite. Yeah, because it's the two lines coming together. Two lines coming together, the Tudor Rose, um, and it's the symbolising of a new golden age moving away from the Wars of the Roses. So Elizabeth is moved to Winchester, because uh, this is widely at the time believed to be the site of Camelot, King Arthur's yeah. court. And of course, Henry VII, as a Welshman, he claims a sort of mythical descent from King Arthur, so it's all playing into that sense of a new Oh, and that's why he calls his firstborn Arthur. He is indeed a boy. It would have been a bit awkward if it had gone to all that trouble and it wasn't the promised son, but it was the promised son, and he names him Arthur. Wow, that's a statement, I see. Uh, As a a further show of unity, Elizabeth's mother, Elizabeth Woodfull, is the godmother, as is, um, whilst a Lancastrian stall at the Earl of Oxford is the godfather. Right. So everyone centred around Prince Arthur, this is the new beginning. Mm. Now, in spite of all this, Elizabeth still hasn't actually been crowned Queen of England yet. Mm. Um, it was only after Henry defeated a final Yorkist rebellion in favour of Lambert Simnel that on the 25th of November 1487, Elizabeth was finally given a magnificent coronation. Uh, she wears magnificent purple velvet kirtle with a gold circlet in her hair, which was uh, set with large pearls, coloured gems. Uh, she was initially rowed in a magnificent barge from Greenwich to the Tower of London. Uh, music apparently playing from a nearby barge following her along, which was decorated as a Tudor dragon. Oh, nice. Uh, and then she was uh, taken in a carriage drawn by eight white horses, attained, uh, entertained by numerous pageants uh, amidst thronging crowds. Uh, the route to Westminster Abbey was carpeted with striped cloth, and apparently so great was the crowds 
that uh, some people are actually trampled to death in a stampede trying to grab pieces of the cloth after she walked over it. Oh, man alive. What a way to go. Hmm. How poor do you have to be? Um, but still, it's quite the personal journey for Elizabeth. As I said, just four years earlier, her father had been on the throne. Um, now he was dead. Her brothers, we assume, were dead. Her uncle is dead. And now she has found herself as queen. God, if you don't die, you end up in the th- on the throne at this period. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, here I am. Oh, yeah. gosh, better keep my head up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she is, uh, as I said, Elizabeth of York, but she is also technically the first queen of the Tudor dynasty. Um, so the match is born out of political necessity. And in many ways, they're opposites. He's an outsider. He's lived most of his life in exile, whereas she has grown up right at the centre of court and is used to all the trappings of royalty. Yeah. So it's weird. He's the king, and yet she's the one that's kind of born yeah. to the life. It would, I can see how it would look like a uh, her rule mm. and him tagging along. Um, Elizabeth was also considered one of the great beauties of the age, and she also possesses her father's natural charm. Mm. It's a very popular on a personal level. Um, Henry is also in his prime, though, to be fair. He's nine years older than Elizabeth. They're slim, above average height, brown hair, quite an expressive face. Um, and they were usually to be found in each other's company. And despite his later reputation as a miser, Henry was very generous to Elizabeth. Um, he'd often spend lavishly on gifts for her mm. and all sorts of things that she loved. Um, and what's more, doesn't seem to have taken any mistresses during their marriage. Oh, good. So good, they yes. are thought to have actually had a very happy mm. marriage and really actually come to love each other nice uh, and they also have numerous children together uh, and while Prince Arthur had his own household as the heir to the throne the others were kept close and Elizabeth appears to have doted on them she's particularly fond of her second son Prince Henry oh really future Henry VIII because he bears a very striking resemblance to her father his, pater- his maternal grandfather Edward IV yeah wow I, I, that, that's one of those bridges again yeah Edward IV to Henry VIII, mm. that feels like a at least a hundred, two hundred year leap, but it's granddad. Yeah, and the uh, Lord knows the generations were squished together in those days. Yeah, uh, a perhaps less welcome part of the family was Elizabeth's mother-in-law. Um, some would say the mother-in-law from hell, Margaret Beaufort. Away, uh, because Margaret Beaufort is just so powerful. She was a vital part of getting Henry uh, onto the throne. Um, indeed arranges the marriage between the two of them basically and once henry's there margaret is a constant presence she's henry's closest advisor almost sort of puts herself on a status level with that of elizabeth of of york apparently you know when in procession and whatnot margaret would walk just half a pace behind uh, Mm -hmm. the queen it's like i'm just acknowledging that technically you're the queen but Oh, right. Yeah. So almost side by side. Well, indeed. And they are widely associated with each other. They sort of, again, they are often together Do they get on? doing various things. Well, a Spanish ambassador noted, the king is much influenced by his mother and his followers in affairs of personal interest and in others. The queen, as is generally the case, does not like it. She is kept in subjection by the mother of the king. No. Uh, but this is actually the only suggestion of animosity between them, and perhaps actually there's the evidence suggests they probably did work quite well together. They patronised religious houses and books uh, together, and quite similar to Eleanor of Provence and Eleanor of Castile 200 years earlier, they team up to urge Henry not to marry their oldest daughter um, until she was old enough. Mm, good, that's nice. Mm. It's a weird one, this, because we've had so many... Uh, this is a... Uh, again, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. A, a period of peace and uh is it not 
No, that's the bad. Oh yeah, for you. Um, yeah, an era of peace. So we can. Whereas before, like the last one, there was hardly any info. Mm. Um, previously, it was all scandal, and there's the throne was going backwards and forwards. This one, throne's claimed, and she isn't part of the official. You know, she isn't the queen consort until after that. Mm. And then it's a long, peaceful reign. Mm. So, what do we all do now? Yeah, what? Do, what? Like, she must get. Is this going to? Is there going to be ceaseless uh, forming of churches and stuff? When do I have to go into Westminster Abbey? Yeah. Well, wasn't anyone died yet? <laughs> um, well, ironically, it was someone claiming to be a family member who proved the greatest threat to Elizabeth Ooh. and uh, Henry's uh, new court. A young man known to us as Perkin Warbeck oh, claimed to be the younger of the princes in the tower, i.e. Elizabeth's younger brother, Prince Richard. And therefore... Um, has right, a rightful king. Rightful king, yeah. Mm. Um, he was welcomed to various European courts and recognised... As, as in recognised, that's an important word, isn't it? Recognised his t- he is officially recognised. Yeah, not as in like it's Richard. I haven't seen <laughs> you for you know because some of those people would have met him, wouldn't they? Well, that's one of those things where one of the reasons people think that the pretenders probably aren't who they say are is that it's notable that nobody really claims to be Edward V. They all claim to be Richard because Edward V. More people probably would have seen him. Yeah. Prince Richard probably fewer. Yeah. Still. Still, <laughs> um, he certainly. I mean, he's got. A, there is a resemblance. You know, some people do even speculate that he could have been one of Edward's many illegitimate children, which would be a useful way to mm. present. Mm. Yeah, see, yeah, of course, you get the family resemblance. It's tricky. You don't have a photo to go back on. Mm. Would you reckon if you went to primary school with someone and you saw them again now, do you reckon you'd recognise them for who they are? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I I feel like probably yes, but I'm sure there'll be some who will have really changed. Because mm. I had that. So a chap moved into the village. I mean, I can definitely believe that you wouldn't recognise somebody. <laughs> I did. Oh, yeah. He moved into the village and he said, Hello, I think I went to primary school. And I suddenly did a double take and I realised his name was Andrew. I was like, Wow. Yeah, and you can sort of see that young boy and just mm. boom, you fill in all the, all the years between but yeah. instantly. Mm. And then in 1497, he raises an army in Cornwall, which marches on London. Quite a sizable army as well. So uh, Elizabeth takes shelter in the Tower of London with Prince Henry. Again. Again, ready to make her way to Westminster. She's yeah. like, okay, fine, no, yeah. I, know the, I know the drill. I know yeah, the drill. yeah. What code is it? Co- oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. We've got the bag. No, Go it's on. the same one as before, yeah. No, <laughs> it's just easier, easier, isn't it? I know security, but... Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, Henry is victorious and Perkin Warbeck is captured. Hmm. Oddly, he's then allowed to mingle at court for quite a while. What? It's just there. Because he doesn't see him as the threat? Exactly. Henry's saying, he's definitely not who he says he is, he's just Perkin Warbeck. Look at him. You meet himself if you want. Oh, right. Oh, that's clever. But uh, Right must... up until the point in 1499 where he is executed. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, this is because Henry is trying to convince the Spanish monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, that his throne is sufficiently secure for them to send their daughter, Catherine of Aragon, as part of a marriage alliance. Wow. And they're basically like, she's not coming until he's dead. So Henry says, all right then. <laughs> does, she, does he send them her, his head? No, no. They, oh, they're okay. willing to take people's word for it. But, okay. Yeah. Yeah, say no photos. <laughs> Mind you, they wouldn't know him from Adam, would I they? Why should you send this? I think we're not going to send our daughter to you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so they are happy enough, presumably 
not because the head was sent to them. Yeah. Um, negotiations uh, progress and are successful. So in 1501, Catherine Rowkin comes to England, uh, where she marries Elizabeth and Henry's eldest son, Prince Arthur. Catherine of Aragon, of course. Catherine of Aragon. Here she is, right, mm. Tudor fans. There's your first bit. It's funny, isn't it, how far we've come now? Henry VIII is here, Catherine of Aragon is here. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, uh, so, Lamnut Simnel, yeah, or Perkin Warbeck, had to lose his head yeah. for Catherine of Aragon. Um, I'm trying to make it rhyme, but I can't. Uh, Louise Brimacombe, you know what to do. <laughs> yeah. To find Arthur's bed. Yeah? Uh-huh. Right, I did not know that. Hmm. Uh, Elizabeth welcomes Catherine to London um, and arrange all of the various festivities, uh, you know, tournaments and banquets, etc., to celebrate uh, the wedding. Um, and then Catherine and Arthur head off to Ludlow to set up their new life as Prince and Princess of Wales. Oh, yeah, of course they do. Yeah. yeah. However, tragedy strikes because in April 1502, Henry receives the terrible news that Prince Arthur has died. How old? 15 or something? 15, yeah. yeah. Not far off 16. Probably of sweating sickness uh, or maybe tuberculosis. Are we to assume they consummated the marriage? He's 15? Is that old enough in those days? Well, that may well be a moot point for Catherine Rankin's episode. Right. So we'll come back to okay. that in some depth. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. In our next consult mm. Anne Boleyn that's the one after Catherine of Aragon yes oh Catherine we're not doing Catherine now no 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 yeah yeah our next consult is Catherine of Aragon yeah so that's when we'll do the Catherine stuff mm. makes sense <laughs> Henry bursts into tears at the news and seeks out Elizabeth so that they could take the painful news together Mm. Uh, initially Elizabeth is very calm and reassuring uh, she reminds him that they still had a fair and goodly prince I. Henry VIII, and were both young enough to have more. I think she's somewhat missing the point there. It does work. He is sufficiently reassured, but once he gets back to his room, Elizabeth's ladies come running for Henry because Elizabeth has got back to her rooms and just collapsed in grief. Okay. So she's basically had to just be strong for him, and then Mm. it all comes out. So then Henry goes running back to her room and then consoles her back. Mm. Oh. Oh terrible tragedy obviously but again like we said with Richard III there is a dynastic implication as well because mm. this whole succession the whole Tudor dynasty that they are starting here is now resting on a 10 year old boy mm. and obviously we know that he does grow up to be king Henry VIII but at this point with childhood mortality we've seen Arthur has just died and a Tudor dynasty hanging on a boy well so as she said they were both young enough so they got straight to work and uh, 36 years old so seven years younger than her mother when she had her last child Elizabeth of York is pregnant once again wow trying to get another spare uh, she bases herself for a confinement in the Tower of London uh, but she goes into very sudden and violent contractions probably prematurely uh, it gives birth to a daughter rather than a son God. Uh, who is named Catherine, uh, probably in honour of Catherine of Aragon, uh, on the 2nd of February in uh, 1503. Um, now, Elizabeth often got ill uh, when she was pregnant, but in this uh, instance, her condition deteriorates very quickly. Uh, Henry sends messengers throughout the night to Kent and to the West Country for physicians uh, to come, but nothing could be done. And very sadly, nine days later, on the 11th of February, 1503, on her 37th birthday, Elizabeth of York dies. Mm, poor woman. 
the impact of losing his eldest son and wife in quick succession was severe on Henry. Contemporaries observed that he was as heavy and dolorous to the King's Highness as hath been seen or heard of, and withdrew to his private apartments for weeks, admitting no one and falling very ill himself. Mm. And it seems that after this, Henry really hardens into the more sort of authoritarian and miserly character that we traditionally mm. see. Um, that maybe wasn't what he was like for most of his reign, but the death of Elizabeth does seem to have changed him, brought out the worst in him. Though he does pay for a magnificent funeral, twice the cost of that for Edward IV, five times that uh, for Prince Arthur. Uh, and touchingly, continued to pay her minstrels 40, shil- uh, 40, shillings? Yeah, 40 shillings annually for the rest of his life. Um, there's also a recently rediscovered uh, Vaux Passionale, which uh, depicts the aftermath of Elizabeth's death. Uh, so this shows us Henry VII uh, in mourning robes, uh, receiving the book. His two daughters there, Margaret and Mary, uh, wearing black robes. And then in the background, a little boy in green, weeping into the sheets of his mother's empty bed. And that is little 11-year-old Prince Henry, mourning the death of his mother. Oh. It's awful. It is. It's really weird to think, isn't it, that, you know, obviously everything you associate with Henry VIII, and not to uh, mitigate or justify any of that, but just seeing that little image there, he's just a boy that's lost his mummy. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a tragedy. And you can't, one can, can't help but speculate what difference Elizabeth York might have made to Henry VIII had she still yeah. been alive. What became of her daughters? Anything special? Uh, one becomes Queen of Scots and one becomes Queen of France. So, yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, that is the life and consortship of Elizabeth of York. We'll review her after a short break. Battleliness. Uh, the contemporary poem, The Most Pleasant Song of Lady Bessie, depicts Elizabeth as having been influential in persuading Lord Stanley to fight for Henry VII uh, in the Battle of Bosworth. And of course, he's the one whose intervention is the crucial thing that swings the battle uh, in Henry's mm. favour when he was meant to be fighting for Richard. Um, so, according to the ballad, it's all thanks to Elizabeth. Good father Stanley, remember thee. It was my father, that King Royal. He set you in that room so high. Remember Richmond, banished full bear. Any lieth in Britain behind the sea, you may recover him of his care. If your heart and mind to him will agree, let him come home and claim his right. And let us cry him King Henry. Oh, not sure. I think, I mean, imagine if Louise was around back in those days. She would be Chaucer (laughs) rolling and the Bible author rolled into one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So basically the poem is saying that she says to Stanley, come on, my father's one who put you where he was. Let's all get behind that wonderful Henry Tudor Mm. and make him king. (laughs) Impressive, if true, that she was the reason that Stanley... Mm. switches sides and changes the battle um the poem is in fact of very doubtful reliability right and uh while it's not possible that she had uh, some contact with stanley one suspects that stanley's wife margaret beaufort mm. might have had a stronger influence on his decision to support her son in the battle oh yeah we should have should have said the same stuff <laughs> yeah. <Would she>? yeah. <laughs> stanley would be like yes that, that's lovely i mean we have been planning this for quite some time. Yeah, Margaret's just there. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm married to her. Well, so you know all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good, good. So, probably not true. We have some evidence of Elizabeth's uh, independent action as queen. Uh, Pope Alexander VI requested that his representative in England be made the Bishop of Worcester, 
only for Henry to reply that Elizabeth had already secured the post for her confessor, and thus presumably, we read between the lines, had said no when Henry asked if she'd mind giving way to the Pope. Mm. Um, also in 1498, the Spanish ambassador handed letters in duplicate to uh, Elizabeth uh, from uh, Catherine and her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, in relation to the negotiation of her marriage, yeah. Catherine's marriage to Arthur. Uh, Henry wanted a copy to carry continually about with him, but Elizabeth refused publicly, telling him that one copy was for Arthur and that she did not like to part with hers. Oh, so she's... She sort of like this, she's the admin person in the family potentially she's like you just lose it i won't you always do i mean it sounds familiar doesn't necessarily sound familiar for henry i mean if very mm. much a details man i'd suggest rather than a losing all the paperwork type yeah uh, i think she just wanted her own copy why do they want this letter so much it's from the king and queen of spain yeah but they're doing themselves down by jumping all <laughs> over it they can be yeah. a bit cool about it and Given that this is all I've really got to go on in terms of uh, major agency and independent action, it's fair to say we've had more impressive examples of this. That's it. That's really all I've got. That, not letting the Pope have his own man as bishop, and a uh, dubious poem suggesting that she masterminded the... Uh, definitely wasn't true. <laughs> Battle of Bosworth. That's, that's nothing, is it? No. So Battle of Bosworth nonsense, uh, just saying that she wants to have her fellow in charge is... Just, I mean, I guess it's the fact that Henry would have been like, Elizabeth, the Pope has asked for this. I don't care. Yeah, that's just petulant. Well, he's putting a foot down, though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. That, and then just a normal sort of marital relationship. <laughs> yes. Two. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was one of those, like, when we did Anne Neville, we were saying we had very little evidence, but there was stuff we could infer. Mm. I sort of feel like we could inf- had less evidence for her, but could infer more than Elizabeth. It feels like Elizabeth, we've got more evidence. Mm. And yet, it's not revealing much to this. I might just be tempted to go for a one, really. Really? I mean, I suppose, you know, we could put the same thing forward that we did with Anne Neville. We say, you know, Elizabeth has to go into sanctuary various times. She's, I mean, she's only a child for that first one. But, you know, she's experienced difficult times and hardship as well as the, she's had downs as well as ups. Actually, yeah, if we're counting out, I've only got one thing that I'm giving two points to because I'm saying Bosworth isn't true. Mm. Uh, what was the other one? Pope and the letter. I didn't... And the letter. Pope and the letter. Hmm. Yeah, I'll happy with one. (laughs) Uh, So that is two for battliness for Elizabeth of York. Not a great start. No. Scandal. The biggie for Elizabeth is her relationship with her uncle, King Richard III. So this is 1484. Elizabeth had returned to court from sanctuary after her mother extracted a public oath from Richard that uh, her daughters would come to no harm. Mm. Uh, And there were rumours that Richard was planning to replace his sickly wife, Anne Neville, with his niece, Elizabeth of York. Uh, But there is also some evidence that Elizabeth was not entirely unreceptive to such flirtation. The Crowland Chronicle observed... During this Christmas feast, too much attention was paid to singing and dancing and to vain exchanges of clothing between Queen Anne and Lady Elizabeth, eldest daughter of the dead king, who were alike in complexion and figure. Right. Now, this might seem petty, but clothing very much delineates social rank. So for Elizabeth to be swapping clothes with Anne, seen as very inappropriate, because Anne is the queen, Elizabeth is... Oh, and and Anne is the current... Was the Anne is the queen at this point. Yeah. Elizabeth is technically illegitimate at this point. 
legally. So this whole clothes swapping thing is, goes against the social norms of mm. different clothes of different status, and also given the rumours of the marriage... Dressing up as his wife. Mm. However, more juicily, a 17th century historian, George Buck, discovered a letter from Elizabeth to the Duke of Norfolk in which she describes Richard as her only joy and maker in this world, to whom she was dedicated in body and all, and that she feared the Queen would never die and asked Norfolk to intercede with Richard to advance marriage plans. Well, that seems pretty black and white, isn't it? Indeed, uh, one of Elizabeth's books has inscribed in it, Loyalty May Lie, Elizabeth, which uh, seems to reference Richard's motto, Loyalty Binds Me. And it's probably from this period, because usually she signs herself Princess Elizabeth or Elizabeth Queen, and this is when she's neither of those, and she doesn't add any prefix or suffix, which suggests it's from this period. And also suggests that she doesn't think for a moment Richard had anything to do with the murder of her brothers, unless... Hmm. She doesn't care. She doesn't care, yes, which would be more <laughs> more scandal. Um, once more, Henry VII seems to have taken the rumours uh, seriously. He he considers alternative marriage arrangements in 1484. It's probably Margaret Beaufort that's quite important in keeping him on track mm. for uh, Elizabeth of York. Some have even speculated that whether the delay in marrying her could have been that he was waiting to make sure that she wasn't pregnant by Richard. Really? Hmm. Yeah. So, yes, Richard was her uncle. Yes, he just set the throne from her brother. And yes, he may or may not have murdered mm. her brothers. But she didn't know him that well. It's not like she's grown up with Uncle Richard always popping in for tea. Yeah, I think family relationships like that meant less. They mm. were just another person at court. He's just a sort of sophisticated 30-odd-year-old respected figure, restored her to court after she'd been in a sanctuary for mm. better part of a year. She's just 18. She doesn't have any, uh, well, she doesn't have any other male relatives mm. to uh, protect her and look out for her and advise her on these things. Um, incredibly juicy, mm. but a bit dubious in terms of the evidence because the Buck letter was actually seriously damaged by fire. He doesn't publish it. It's published by his nephew. And the young Buck huh? looked at this letter with lots of words missing and basically just filled in no. with plausible alternatives. So a lot of these very damning lines for Elizabeth of York are actually George Buck's nephew thinking, well, this would probably fit. God, that's the equivalent of that woman uh, who, uh, and I say woman because I remember that about her but nothing else, who (laughs) sought to improve that ancient Spanish portrait. (laughs) So he wrote it in on the originals like he was playing a crossword. Well, I don't know if he wrote it in the original. I think it's probably the original. He probably couldn't because of the fire, so he just writes it up. Oh, and you're not sure which bit's real, which bit's... Well, I think having the letter has been rediscovered and then people are like, oh, actually, Uh, once you take out these words that have obviously been placed in later, then there isn't ambiguity. So just days after Anne Neville's death, Richard was writing to the Portuguese uh, to arrange his own marriage to the king's sister, but also Elizabeth to marry uh, the king's cousin. Mm. So perhaps then the chance of a prestigious marriage to a Portuguese royal is what Elizabeth is so excited about, particularly given that she had been declared illegitimate. She may have had had the betrothal to the French. Dauphin had been broken off. She may have thought, oh, I'm never going to get married. She's now, thanks to Richard, got a chance to marry um, Portuguese royalty. 
but part of that marriage is, the, is Anne dying. Anne dies, so Rich can do it. So maybe it's, I mean, it's a bit heartless, but maybe Elizabeth thinking, oh, once Anne dies, I can marry a Portuguese noble. Mm. And she is loyal to Richard because he is providing her with this restoration rather yeah. than it being a Machiavellian plan to That's marry him. Likely. Mm. You've really got to be clear, though, don't you? Because it's so, <laughs> it, that, that one thing can mean two completely <laughs> yeah. different. Um, another piece of uh, potential scandal, and again, it's a little bit of a reach, um, but Perkin Warbeck, mm. pretended to the throne who was claiming to be her younger brother, who, uh, well, Perkin, that is, was captured and ultimately executed. Almost inexplicably, there's not a single source that evidences Elizabeth expressing any view on Perkin Warbeck whatsoever. No dismissal of his claims, no comment on his resemblance to her brother, nothing, despite the fact that, as we said, after he was captured, he was allowed just to mingle at court for quite a few months. And she would have met him. You would have thought she must at least have seen him. Indeed, his wife, who is purporting to be her sister-in-law, is actually placed in Elizabeth's household by Henry. Which is another this sign is so of, strange. Another sign of Henry very publicly saying, this guy is just called Perkin Warbeck, I'm not bothered. But what a ticket in. What a ticket in. But from Elizabeth's perspective, you think, well, if she, she must have seen him. She must have been a bit curious. Mm. And yet we've got nothing. Uh, Francis Bacon claims that Warbeck had stated that on his release from the Tower in 1483, that's him saying that he's the prince, um, he had resolved to wait for his uncle's death and then put myself into my sister's hands, who was next heir to the crown. So he is talking about her, but from Elizabeth... We haven't got anything. Mm. So it's interesting to speculate, what if he actually was her brother, mm. and she does recognise him, but doesn't say anything, and then he ends up being executed. Suggests a rather darker side to her character. I think it definitely wasn't, because I think that's her also saying it's just not my brother. Yes, and the thing is that actually the fact that Henry so confidently displays him, mm. you think surely he wouldn't have done that if he thought there was any chance of Elizabeth. Yeah. You know, she just had to gasp when she first saw him and mm. everyone mm. would say, oh, it's the king. Mm. Um, and actually, anything she said about Perkin Warbeck, there was nothing she could say that would improve the situation. Mm. The most likely situation is that she would sort of lend him more credibility simply by having to comment having him out and about and saying nothing is probably the best way to discredit him. Yeah. Other than that as queen, nothing scandalous in her behaviour, no sense of uh, you know infidelities or murders or... Well, there's either loads or none at all, isn't there? We do still have her cavorting about a bit. We do still have contemporary rumours that Richard is forced to deny. Now, obviously, that is arguably more about him than about her. But at the same time, you know, she is presumably seen... Flirting yeah. with him. That's a point. Well, no, maybe that's two points. But I don't think the Simnel thing is anything. Perkin Warbeck. Perkin, <laughs> Perkin Warbeck is anything. Uh, two points. Mm. It's funny, I'm, it's, I'm tempted to go higher with the, just the Richard thing. It's just, it's, it's one of those nice ones as well, where obviously because she becomes Henry VII's wife and queen of the start of Tudor dynasty, mm. you imagine that any sense that there was any more detail to be had from that story would have been very, very carefully yeah, deleted yeah. from the record. So the fact that something survives, and you think that's probably why there's that poem about her with the whole Bosworth thing, because maybe they're trying to cover up the fact that actually 
at that point in history, she was more likely trying to marry Richard oh, than she right. was trying to marry Henry. Yeah, because that's just a, a textbook bit of Tudor propaganda. Mm. So I'm going to go a bit higher. I'm, I'm going to give her a, I'm going to give her a four. Wow. It's just, I mean, that's still less than a five, obviously. Mm. I just feel it's just there's a whiff there. It's a bit whiffy. Yeah. Well, I'll give her a t- two two whiffs. <laughs> two whiffs. <laughs> so a two to four. It's a six. The scandal. Subjectivity. Well, this is very much the factor for uh, Elizabeth. Uh, having grown up in the splendour of Edward IV's court, she had a great love of pageantry and inherited the Woodville passion for jousting. Uh, so she helps to make uh, tournaments a regular spectacle mm. in the reign of Henry VII, often recorded as being in attendance. And it's notable that after her death, Henry's sort of penny-pinching resulted in a lack of pageantry at court and a lack of jousting until mm. Henry VIII comes back, yeah. until Henry VIII comes to the throne. And Henry VIII is very much his mother's son. Mm. So her passions... We see in him, uh, or the better ones, perhaps. <laughs> uh, Simon Turley of English Heritage suggests that the Burgundian influence on Tudor architecture, uh, notably in Greenwich, following a new plan devised by the Queen, um, was reflective of Elizabeth's personal taste more than Henry's, uh, things that she inherited from uh, her grandmother, Jaquetta, from the Woodvilles. So the sense that perhaps this sort of the classic Tudor architecture, which is sort of in development at this point, that she may be is an influence helping to shape that. Uh, She's a pious woman, and uh, with Margaret Beaufort, uh, founded Chantry in Guildford, and jointly commissioned William Caxton to produce an edition of the 15 O's, which is a work uh, reputedly written by St. Bridget of Sweden, in whom they both shared an interest. And was also Caxton's last book. Oh, that's it. There we go. Hmm. (laughs) Rex Come on, on, make this interesting. (laughs) Make it interesting. (laughs) Uh, she has a love of literature, so she owns numerous illuminated books, also gives them uh, as gifts. So do uh, I. Oh, there you go, that's nice. Yeah. Um, and it also appears that she probably personally taught her daughters and Henry uh, how to read and write. Uh, she's the likely author of one of only three lyric poems in Middle English, which is ascribed to a female author. Are you going to give me the other ones? No. No. Uh, title is My Heart is Set Upon a Lusty Pin. Scandal. Hmm. Uh, she also has a passion for music, uh, which she passes on to her children. She had her own band of minstrels, as we said, Henry VII pays them after she dies. Uh, she also personally plays the clavichord, while her daughters learn the lute, virginal and organ. Uh, and Henry VIII was renowned as a young man for his singing, dancing and composition. All of which really comes from her. Yeah. Uh, the nursery rhyme, Sing a Song of Sixpence, is sometimes said to be uh, referencing Elizabeth. So she is supposedly the queen in the parlour, while Henry is the king counting out his money. Oh, yeah. But isn't that one about a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down? That's Ring a Ring of Roses. Uh, she enjoyed her parlour games. Who doesn't? Um, she apparently once paid a man to go on pilgrimage on her behalf because she was too busy playing cards to go in person. <laughs> uh, well, another legend has it that the queens on playing cards are based on her. Oh, yeah. Let me have a little look at her portrait. Oh, yeah. Almost yeah. certainly not true, sadly, because we basically get them from France, and in France each queen actually has a biblical identity. Uh, as you might expect, she's a very generous woman. She paid her sister's dowries when Henry VII didn't. Uh, also provided annuities for their husbands and paid the expenses of her sister Bridget, who was mm. a nun. Uh, this generosity extends to her nephews and nieces, even those of uh, William Courtney, who was married to her sister Catherine, who was put in the tower for treason. But she still provides, you know, all the clothes and food and whatnot for her relatives, oh, nice. even when they're very much out of favour. Uh, when Catherine Aragon was widowed after Arthur's death, Elizabeth helped to settle her bills accrued from the wedding and then paid all her expenses to get her back to London. 
Nice. And again, it's one of those where you wonder if Elizabeth had uh, lived, Catherine of Aragon's struggles that we'll hear about next time after Arthur's death might have been somewhat relieved if Elizabeth had been there. Um, Elizabeth's generosity extends beyond her family. Two of her few surviving letters uh, have her interceding for others, uh, including recommending a soldier to Ferdinand of Aragon, noting that though he is a very short man, he has the reputation of being a valiant soldier. Um, her accounts of 1502, the last year of her life, show numerous donations to uh, religious houses, ascetics, uh, lots of small individual donations to either court attendants or just random poor subjects. Mm. Um, maybe a bit of a soft touch as well. So there's 12 pence recorded being given to a man of Pontefract who claimed to have lodged her uncle Antony in 1483. On the back of no evidence, you can just say that, and this presumably this fellow is money for it. It's a good job. <laughs> Um, she seems to be genuinely popular, which I guess she would be if you yeah, give me <laughs> money, money driving on. Uh, but, you know, beautiful, regal, possessing a father's natural charm. She's a very important, very important part of Henry being able to successfully establish his mm. uh, new regime. Uh, and contemporaries have nothing but praise for her. The Spanish ambassador described her as a very handsome woman and in conduct very able, the most distinguished and the most noble lady in the whole of England. Nice praise. Uh, and most importantly, by marrying Henry, she does ensure the acceptance of Yorkists and helps bring the country back together after the Wars of the Roses. Uh, Francis Bacon claimed that Henry's marriage was with greater triumph than either his entry or his coronation. Uh, while John Stowe noted that the two families of York and Lancaster, which had long been at great division, were united and made one. So it's sort of similar to Henry I's marriage to Matilda of Scotland. Uh, where you had the son of William the Conqueror marrying a Saxon princess. It's that bringing together mm-hmm. of the rival lines that makes it, going forward, more acceptable to everyone. Elizabeth provides a sense of legitimacy to Henry's reign, however much he's claiming the throne by himself. You know, she is the white in the Tudor Rose, and she ensures that Henry VIII's succession is unquestioned because he is both York and Lancaster. Uh, I mean, I guess I would. What? Like to be her. Oh, subject. like to be her subject. Yeah, <laughs> that's gone very blue all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah. yeah, it's all the usual stuff. Well, I mean, we say all the usual stuff, but given what we've been going through with Margaret of Anjou, with yeah, yeah, Anne Neville, Elizabeth Woodville, even going back, you know, Catherine of Valois, Joan of Navarre didn't get a chance. Actually, it's a while since we've had sufficient stability combined with influence and longevity mm. for a consort to actually do all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and she and she does. I was looking for like, I don't know. You know, you know. I love this one, and it seems like she's doing well. Yeah, I mean, I guess against her, you might say it's a little bit passive, a bit more dynastic rather than personal. Other than her being popular personally, but the Spanish ambassador noted she's beloved because she's powerless, and you know, she's kindly, she's generous, she's popular because of who she was. But it's not actually doing an awful lot. It's more just she is. Mm. the daughter of the previous king mm. therefore that has a dynastic significance and this is what you do when you're a queen and you've got 30 years to twiddle your thumbs mm. I mean I guess the problem is she doesn't have 30 years to twiddle her thumbs she can imagine had she lived for another 30 years had she outlived Henry the mm. had she been a, you know an influence on Henry the Eighth, maybe a bit more emollient or whatever softening some of the rough edges mm. Um, but you know that's still that's a lot of good stuff and you put that in the context of what we've had with the Walls of the Roses yeah you'd love it wouldn't you mm. so it's got to be a 6 but I can't get excited about it I'm going to be more generous I'm going to give her an 8 really I think it's really good subjectivity I think what what more could you ask for from a queen at this time particularly given everything that's been before so we've got church stuff we've got giving peasants money for looking after uncles 
We've got books, we've books. got pageantry, we've got music. Yeah, what else could you do? Generosity with people. And we've got the important fact that she is crucial to the fact that the Tudors are able to establish themselves. That is very true. Her identity is what is reassuring. Because it's noticeable actually when Henry's very ill after she dies and people are speculating on what will happen when Henry dies and apparently the people are listing who the next king would be and they were listing all sorts of people, initially nobody saying Henry VIII because they just assume, well, it's a boy king, Elizabeth of York is dead now, no one really feels that loyal to Henry VII. It's all just going to happen again. Because with her not there, there's nothing for the Yorkists to really get excited about. Henry's not quite old enough. They'd all signed up to Arthur being king. He dies. Right. That's part of why Henry VII really turns so introspective and paranoid and yeah. miserly. He feels that having lost his wife and his heir, he can't trust people anymore. She was an important part of hmm. keeping it all together. I, I'll go up to a seven. I think you've persuaded me that. <laughs> yeah, jolly good. So that's an eight for me, a seven for Mally, 15 for subjectivity. Longevity. Elizabeth of York is consort from the 18th of January, 1486, to the 11th of February, 1503, which is 17.08 years. Not bad. Not bad. Gives her a score of 10.5 out of 20, which is the 24th best overall. Almost exactly bang average. Hmm. Dynasty. Not the problem. Elizabeth has seven children by Henry. Sadly, three die before her. Uh, she died soon after childbirth and while sadly uh, the daughter Catherine uh, does also die in the aftermath uh, she does survive Elizabeth by a short time oh really so yeah. by our rules yeah. that should count as a yeah. legitimate surviving child even Absolutely. though she doesn't uh, survive Henry um, but when Elizabeth dies that last daughter is also still alive well, so that, that means counts. that means she has four surviving children which gives her a score of 14 out of 20 joint 16th overall that's pretty good that's pretty good so overall a score of 47.5 exactly the same as margaret of anjou that's a lot bigger than i was expecting joint 14th thus far out of 36 but it's not all about the score. Does he have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, star quality that we call... Rex Factor! The argument for Elizabeth of York is the subjectivity one. It's that she's, I guess, the ideal consort for the time. Henry VII couldn't have got a better person to have been his queen. Mm. Beautiful, popular, charming, does all the stuff you need to do, doesn't get in his way, brings things together after the Wars of the Roses, nice... I know, and I can see all these as positives, but I can't find any, any hook. It's it's one of those weird things where it's a criticism to say, she's just very nice. Yeah, and she does what she does really well. Mm. So on that basis, we're not giving you the job. <laughs> yeah. What? You just said I was perfect for the job. Yes, yeah. I know, but some of the other people who've come in, they're incredibly divisive. They're not really doing any of the things <clears throat> they're meant to do yeah. as queen. Yeah, but I thought that was... It, it it's tricky the argument in her favour is she's the ideal queen consort the argument against her is it's maybe a bit boring to be the ideal queen consort yeah hmm oh man wouldn't it because we didn't give it to Henry VII did we and it's a funny thing isn't it that he's after Oak of the Peaceable he's probably the one that yeah. most people think you know actually if you look at him on paper yeah he's ticking a lot more boxes than Henry VIII is doing other than the star quality thing but it, that is what the Rex Factor is. Mm. And so, I just don't think it's there. I think the thing for me is the sort of the passive element. It's the fact, like in battliness, it's not 
you know, the fact that they don't have the Wars of the Roses drama, you know, it's fine. You can't have that for everybody. But the fact that we really don't have much to suggest any real independent action. That's it. If you've got all that, um, if you've got all that peace that we haven't had, Mm. do something with it. I mean, but clearly because there hasn't been a period of stability, you don't want to do any upsetting. That's exactly what's needed. Just keeping the ship steady. Yeah. But that doesn't get you the Rex factor. Unlike a mother, she is born to be a queen consort, not of England, but that yeah. was the role that she, the role that she was preparing for, growing up to be the supportive consort mm. to a king. Um, and she doesn't face the circumstances of a Margaret of Anjou or Elizabeth Woodville. She faces circumstances she's meant to face, and she does the things she's meant to do, and consequently mm. doesn't really seem to have a greater ambition for doing anything to upset the apple cart. Yeah. And maybe it's not upsetting the uppercut. Maybe it's just doing all that stuff with some flair or a personality that gets reported upon. Mm. And, you know, maybe she'd live for another 30 years, we'd have got a more stuff from her, more foundations, more stuff under Henry, or maybe even yeah. more detail under Henry to celebrate her. Well, I'm sorry, all you um, Henry fans, but it's a, even, even Henry's wife, we're twisting the knife. Ooh, can't do another one. <laughs> Yeah, no from me. And uh, a no from me as well, sadly. I think a very good queen consort, mm. exactly the right person for that time, but lacking the great achievement or star quality. Correspondence Corner. That's a no for Elizabeth of York. She does not have the Rex factor. But let us know what you thought about her and if you agree or disagree. We are going to be shortly doing a write of reply episode for the Yorkist Consort. So anything about her or about Elizabeth Woodville or Anne Neville that you want us to cover, uh, get that in. Uh, in the next week, probably, and then we'll be doing an episode after that. Uh, otherwise, you can get in touch in all the normal ways, Twitter and Instagram, at RexFactorPod, like the RexFactorPodcast Facebook page, and email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And remember to send in a hashtag consort card for an episode image for Elizabeth of York. Yeah, please do. Uh, if you'd like to support us, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use, or donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get over 100 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Amanda Kennedy, Rachel Wade, Danny McCarthy, Robert Finch, Chris Double, V-Dubs, Dunstan the Fun Sponge, <coughs> Claire, Mary Bingham, Zeta Vasilisinova, Miles Kerr-Peterson, Courtney Smotherman, Catherine Price, Nancy Gill, Carrie McDougald Roberts, Debbie Quinn, Emma Worrell, Debs Ballister, Erin Cray, Jenny Begent, Miss Anthropic. Ah, very good. You love a pun. <laughs> Jess Hosu, Henry Jorant, Bubbles, and Katie. Uh, and finally, Consort Limerick from Louise Bremerkham. Oh, yes. This time, Margaret Devonji. Oh, okay. When her husband proved less use than none, Margaret set out to fight for her son. But when he was slain on Tewkesbury Plain, her two decades of work were undone. <laughs> that, it's just a thing of beauty, isn't it? That one was right, so precise. Uh, she commented on this one. She doesn't usually. She commented on this one saying, writing a sad limerick is hard. It's not the obvious form for tragedy. Gosh, she's good, isn't she? <laughs> Anyway, that is it for uh, Elizabeth of York, and that is it for uh, the Yorkist Consort. So uh, we've got lots of uh, really great interviews uh, lined up uh, mm-hmm. that we think you'll enjoy. Uh, we'll be then doing a special episode on the Great Fire of London. Nice. Then we will return, and our next Consort episode will be 
Catherine of Aragon. That's a mini-series in itself. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Our next ten episodes will be <laughs> Catherine of Aragon. Anyway, from, until then, goodbye. Cheerio! Cheerio!